You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. What makes a good leader? What makes a good brand? These are two of the questions I've wrestled with throughout my 30-year career working with large corporations. And there is no larger a corporation in Australia than Woolworths. As the country's biggest retailer, it serves 24 million customers a week and employs over 200,000 Australians. It truly is part of the fabric of the nation. The complexity and pressure involved in running an organisation of such scale is mind-boggling. Yet Brad Banducci, their CEO, appears to manage it with good-natured composure. I was delighted to have him take the Five of My Life challenge in order to learn more about the person behind the business success. So, Brad Banducci, welcome to Five of My Life. Lovely to be here with you, Nigel. Well, it's taken five years, mate. You, you, you're a tough date. Well, you, 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 you pulled the ultimate one on me. You suggested let's do it in about 24 months' time, and that felt long enough away for me to agree. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very glad you did. How did you find the process of choosing? Uh, I found it's a terrific process, actually, and I'm sure you know this. They, they, a lot of conversations end up ha- ha- happening with family and friends on what would you do, which are yours. It, it is very revealing, as you well know. So uh, it was very easy for me. Um, except for the song, I'll come back to the song. It was very and hard. D- did you uh, did you run these past Anna, or w- was it just a song? No, I, I, I did them, and then I checked, uh, and I checked with the people I did it with, and I found my memory was completely unreliable. Okay, well, listen, I, I might have to tell you what you've chosen if you've forgotten. <laughs> but we always start on Five of My Life with the film, and we are going back to the nineteen sixties, and you have chosen the third in the dollars trilogy uh the the definitive spaghetti western the good the bad and the ugly 1966 uh, tell us why you've chosen that on five my life i loved it in italian il brutto e cavato and uh i should know what the the good was il buono we, we were a family mad about movies uh and the series which was all released in one year i think in 1967 with clint eastwood as the star and in this one he's blondie he was the man with no name, I think, in the earlier ones. It was just, you know, greatly reminiscent of our lives. My mother was insistent on naming her sons after movie actors. Uh, my brother is named Clinton after Clint Eastwood. I was named after a movie star that uh, was better known at the time, but no one remembers, Bradford Dillman, who was famous for Piranha and Towering Inferno. So this <laughs> no is one fantastic. Heard of and and mum admits so, this after her favorite stars. Yeah, she, she, she relented on my, my, my youngest brother, and he became Guy. Uh, so she relented after, we pointed out to this was quite embarrassing to be named after so-called movie stars. I mean, Clint Eastwood obviously went on to great fame. Yeah. But what a great cast. Reading about the film is uh, Eli Wallach, who was the, the ugly. Clint was worried the whole way through that he was being upstaged. 
because because you're right, it's a fantastic cast, and and Lee Van Cleef, but also I mean, Eli, he he had such a great performance in there that you couldn't help sort of being engaged with his character, although obviously Clint was the hero. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, Serge Leone is, and we're an Italian family that came to South Africa, so I like the Italian kind of Western thing. Um, but um, Serge felt that he was almost Italian-like, I think, Eli, was sort of almost crazy enough in a lovely, you know, spontaneous way to, to be an Italian. Clint, he, he claims, and it, people seem to agree with him, that this was his major breakthrough to, to global stardom. So he, he'd, he'd done lots of stuff, but this third one was the one where finally he was that thing. It makes me want to ask you, have there been, and if there have, please tell us about them, moments which, looking back, you go, yeah, that was it. That that was the thing that broke me into a different different level. Well, I've always been a. Th- well, we'll come back and talk about the book, but I do like Malcolm Gladwell, and and I and I uh, like the outliers. We'll come back to, but I love tipping point, and there are tipping point theories of life, and yep. we've all had many of those. And yeah, I've had my my series. Um, I think Clint called it his uh, his his tipping point because he took a percentage of the gross. On yes, ten percent. Clever man. And it was, I think, one of the biggest movies of 1967. So it yeah, clearly yeah. was a tipping point in his life. I've had many actually, generally to do with other people and just wonderful moments and experiences of doing interesting things. And in a career sense, uh, my time actually in, in Tyro Payments with a, I don't know if you've met him, Jus Stallman, uh, one of life's great entrepreneurs, was a, you know a tipping point in my time in Cellar Masters with uh, James Carnegie. Uh, was was another one, um, and, and and what do these two gents do that made your uh, such an impact? Vision, a vision, and an ability to also understand me probably better than I understood myself, and so I just loved their their vision, their charisma, uh, and yeah, their kind of insight into what really motivated me, which sort of struck a chord that's very hard to define. Interesting. Well, we're going to move on to the book that you have mentioned, 2008, Malkin Gladwell Outliers. Now, I'm conflicted. So I'm, I, there you go. I shouldn't have said that. I, I am conflicted. Oh, I like that. Okay, uh, which I'll tell you in a second. But, but tell us why you have chosen uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers on Five My Life. It, it was one of those great defining books for me in terms of um, – I love the counterintuitive aspect of life. You know, there's a wonderful poem, I think, by, is it Robert Foss? You know, the road less traveled. If you say left, I'll say right. Yeah. It's deep in my DNA, I think. Uh, and I love that book because that's what it's all about. It's outliers and how do you analyze them and, and what do you think success is about and really what is it truly about? And there's just wonderful series of stories. But it was a defining book for myself and Anna with our girls because one of the chapters in the book is about uh, kids and how they develop and do they develop if they go to the best school in town or or what you know what happens at school and what happens in the holidays and he proves that actually kids develop most during the holidays and it's all about experiences and showing experiences for your kids and opening their eyes and this became a very defining thing for us for 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 many years still is of how do you create experiences versus physical things and and so I yeah I sent, made me send my kids on some strange adventures which hopefully they won't need to be on the couch on later in life but sending to go and save the leopard in the cape or go to Cambridge to do Shakespeare and uh, we've been privileged to be able to do that but it yeah it was kind of a really defining way for me to think about life and to think about bringing up kids. I'm so glad that that story went there because that that's beautiful and i mean i i've when i had a bit of a change of a life myself I, I absolutely thought right this is you know put the things and people that you love at the center of your life not not at the outside if if you wait for 
the world's schedule to suggest that you take your kids camping. You're never going to do it. You've got to say, I'm going, and then the world fits around it. So I, I love the fact that that book had that positive effect on you, that the reason why I'm conflicted, I've read, yep. I'm going to say all of Gladwell's stuff. I'm, I'm, he's probably written a book that I haven't read, but I think I've read all of them, you know, Blink and, and Tipping Point, whatever. And I, I think he's so, so incredibly readable and enjoyable and wise and helpful. But then there's the... And, and and who am I to say this? I'm an earthworm. He, he's got the brain the size of Africa, and I'm just Nigel, <laughs> right? But I cannot help... Nigel from Bronte. <laughs> Nigel from Bronte. I can't help thinking, uh, that at the risk of being pretentious, he indulges in the illusion of erudition. I would say so, but I, I reread a bit of the book in preparation. I listened to it on Audible last night. My flight was delayed. What I thought the book was about wasn't quite, you know, I thought it was defining success in all the clever ways. It was actually about how communities and create success. If you listen to it deeply, and it starts with the story of the the, the Italian village in, in America that, uh, that you know, people lived for a very long time. And it was not because they ate healthily or did anything, but because they were a community. And so I, I kind of had a, I, I agree with you, but I actually had a bit of a revelation rereading it. And I would say that defines my career. It's, you always think it's about you. It, it never is. It's about all the other preconditions, of which 10,000 hours is but one. There are many others. And I think the way he unpicks that, I think it's his best book, actually, Nigel. I'd be controversial and say. I enjoy all of them. A bit like some of the self-help books. You, I, I read them and I think this is utter rubbish but there's one or two points in it they're actually quite you know feel the fear and do it anyway there's actually i don't need all the stories but there's a central thesis in here that that's quite helpful um so so gladwell yeah i mean he's a very very competent storyteller compelling storyteller but can i ask you about business books and and i need to make a confession it is it seems to me that most of the people that write them couldn't run a bath, let alone a company. And, <laughs> given, and given that you run a very, very large one, um, uh, do you ever read them? I, th- I thought Outlier was a business book because actually when I came back to it now, I thought it was about these preconditions, the team that you have around you, the time. Timing is everything in most things, in, 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 including especially in business, actually. And so I actually went back and thought, you know, actually the way he lays that out is a lot to do with business. And business is never about individual success or very seldom it's generally about team success it's about the right time the right place a lot of hard work uh, you know fortune favors the prepared mind and so on so I, I feel like it's all those conditions the only book that I've read of recent times is the mind of the consumer which right. is one of the original seminal works on how a consumer shops a grocery store okay and it's with me all the time because coming into the industry a bit later in my career uh, I hadn't had the you know the 10,000 hours of walking around supermarket stocking shelves uh, but uh, so I read this amazing book, and it was just a very behavioural science of how people shop the grocery store, and it defines the way I think about everything we do at Woolies, actually. And and, and you love retail, don't you? I, I I know I know people who know you, and and you're not banging it on. You you can be found in your spare time actually walking around the shops, which I think is really endearing. You nutter. <laughs> How amazing is that, that your work can be your passion and you can actually <laughs> read something like the mind and you, then you can walk down the road and walk around a shop. Yeah. But to your point, actually, what I find interesting is in every shop and in, in particular in competitors, there's always something good and you've got to d- deliberately focus on finding the good. So I, I have a firm routine, as everyone knows, at Woolies. I like to go to a Coles before a Woolies. And if I go to a Coles, which I try and go with one of the, the team members from the, the, the adjacent Woolworths, I always start with, show, with tell me the things that you like in the store. So deliberately start with the good. 
uh, in that process. And so, you know, there is always good in a business book, in a competitor, make sure you find it, make sure you understand it. And if you can, of course, make sure you use it. Uh, that is, mate, that's fantastic. Focus on finding the good. I mean, I mean that, that's great life advice, not just business advice. Wonderful. Well, we're going to move on to your third choice on Five My Life. We put all the songs on the Five My Life Spotify playlist. It's a fantastic five and a half hour long, and <laughs> really? it's completely random. You have to watch it. Because your, your, yeah, your song is different to Julia Gillard's, yeah. it's different to John Eels's, and, and, but hey, they're all good songs because you wouldn't have chosen them if they're not. Uh, and you chose the opening track on J.J. Cale's debut album, Naturally. I got me nobody. Call Me The Breeze, 1972. Uh, tell us about that. Again, I like the counterfactual. J.J. Cale was the musician's musician. So if you listen to Eric Clapton, Mark Koffler, Tom Petty, all of them have actually played the song. And it is all on Spotify. You know, they would look at him as one of the inspirations for their careers. And I've always liked that. It's where do the chefs eat? You know, what do the winemakers drink after they've finished work? Actually, where drink, do the yeah, chefs eat? I hate to tell you this. It's devastating when you find out that they don't drink someone else's wine. They have a cleansing ale. <laughs> uh, and, you know, what do the musicians listen to? And he's one of those great musicians that more musicians appreciated him probably than he got in, you know, public success. So I love that. Uh, the song itself, I, I love the artist more than the song. When he passed in, I think, 2014, they released an album of, his, of all his great songs and it was called The Breeze. And I kind of thought there's something in that and says something about, apart from being competitive, I'm relentless, you know, you know, I, Nigel, I, you know, I keep going. I keep coming back to the same issues. It can be extremely irritating for everyone who knows me, I might add. It's not necessarily a positive behavioral characteristic, but there's something in that. But I, I loved everything he did, the Tulsa sound. You know, and the whole way he played his own music, um, just there was everything to be inspired. I, I originally was confused between him and Jay Cale. John Cale, who was in the Velvet Underground for a long time, and then <laughs> kind of realized JJ was a, a different character. And I, I found him again during COVID, sitting at home a lot by myself and uh, ended up becoming kind of crazy on all of his albums. Interesting life and interesting man. And, and in, in your honor, I've been researching him. And wow, the, the impact he had on Clapton. Clapton talks about him being his absolute hero i mean he's, he's 100 hero and you know all the songs you're right being covered by people from leonard skinner to to eric clapton and johnny he, cash even sang uh, the call me the breeze yeah it, it just just wonderful and, and there's if you go on youtube I, I recommend people do this and uh you you sort of um put in the search uh, Clapton and J.J. Cale. You see them on stage together. And, and Clapton is in awe of J.J. Cale. And you go, that, that probably doesn't happen very often. When, uh, it's usually the other way around. Well, it was, I think his only real moment of fame was 2010, the road to Escondido. They, uh, they got a Grammy uh, together. And it was just at the end of his career. I think he passed maybe a year or two later than that. So it was kind of what a lovely epitaph on a career to, to do it with together and to get a Grammy, which is the most he ever got. On Five My Life, I try and uh, weave a natural segue from the choice to, to the guest. So here we go. Hopefully it's not too clunky. But J.J. Cale, he was fascinating on many levels. But one of them is he, he wanted success, but he didn't want fame. 
he genuinely had no interest in that stuff. And, and there are people who say they don't want it, but really they do. They just want the right type. And there are people who actually don't want it. And you can tell from how they how they behave. And so he never, ever, you know, chased that and whatever else. Uh, you are a modest bloke. And you don't, there isn't, when I'm researching you, there isn't much about you other than your role. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit about that? How you view, you've got a high profile role, how you view the attention that that necessarily brings and how you control it and what boundaries you put around it. Oh, well, golly, that's that's a really, a really tough one. I'm extremely worried that of hubris and, um, and, and you know, I guess fame can bring hubris and you sort of lose context of your life and who you are and what's important. And so this is sort of an under, underlying anxiety, including a Woolies, like what does a store look like when they don't know I'm coming? Yes. Or they don't know the senior management team are coming. What does it really look like? How does one of our team members really speak to you know, a supplier and so on? So I'm, I'm, I am anxious about it and probably reflects a little bit of my life growing up in Boxburg in South Africa, which is a small mining town and you know, very probably very humble place and I'm still friends with a lot of people from there and uh, you know they're, they're all my, my, my friends for life and I'd hate them to I always wonder what, what they may think of me in certain <laughs> circumstances so it's all those anxieties I try and set boundaries Nigel as we all do uh, on, on on those kinds of things and try and be very careful of making sure I get that balance um, but it's not easy and I, I'm I don't know if I know the answer but I think it's a really interesting question and I don't think I'll know where I've come out on it until I finish it, Woolies. And when I'm standing in the queue and no one will let me get to the front, I'll find out how I feel. <laughs> you know, because it's those, th- those small things that you kind of get to like, I think. One of the ways that some of my guests do it, which I think has, has some merit, depending on, you know, obviously whatever works for, for each person, but is to talk about happy to do stuff that is talking about the role. But then when it's talking about yourself, you go, do you know what, I'm not, I'm not into that. You go, that's that can be quite a nice it's sort of. You put it in two different boxes. You go, no, I'm not going to go on. I don't know, Dancing with the Stars or or whatever. But yes, if if CEO magazine wants to interview me about retail trends, it, that might be a thing that I'll do. Blah blah blah. Yeah, I think that's right. Although my real learning at Woolies um, in the last, my golly, you know, eleven years has been authenticity is key. And so you do need to bring a little bit of yourself into the work environment. That strong line, I used to believe that, I think is, certainly in the industry I'm in, is, is, is you've got to be quite careful and thoughtful. My mother was recently uh, quite ill and I felt a bit embarrassed. I needed to nick off and, you know, this drop of a hat and weave my way back to South Africa for a hip operation. And I wrote everyone just, an, I had no other way of doing it. I just wrote everyone out, so this is what's happening. This is where I'm going. Sorry, cheers. See you later. And a number of the team came back to me and said, thank you for just being so honest and revealing. And everyone brings their life to work. And we we need to acknowledge that and appreciate it and have empathy. So authenticity, it can't be at the expense of authenticity is what I would say. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, well, I'm a lousy dancer, so I'm not going to be on Dancing for the Stars, thank goodness. <laughs> heroes. So Clapton says, J.J. Kale, hero. Uh, have you got any heroes? I don't mean in a business sense. I mean, it could be business, but it just in life. Well, I, I do come back to this this composite of taking great things out of many people. And I've met so many inspirational people in my life that have kind of given me something and still give me something, whether it's your Storman at Tyro, James Carnegie at Cellarmasters, Maury Coop at the Boston Consulting Group. Um, many, many people uh, around Woolworths Group, uh, our ch- previous chairman, our current chairman, there, there's so many. So I, I look at the composite. I'm really inspired you know, by that composite, to your point, and there's always something good, and it's a good reminder and gets you focused. Uh, in fact, some of the 
our best store managers when they give me let me tell you <laughs> I find it I find it inspiring so I'm more of a composite kind of person than an individual you've said you're relentless if um, if I were to push you you're on the psychiatrist couch you go what would you identify as one of your flaws well, oh, and, and don't say on that interview I worked <laughs> I care too much <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I loved it on 30 Rock where Alec Baldwin says I should have worked harder <laughs> so isn't you know what would you show? change you love I should have worked harder isn't that sensational uh, that show I just laugh I love it 30 it's, Rock it's a brilliant show I, I love that line I, I still think about it um, actually but as an on sequitur wouldn't you like to go back to many of the people that you learn things from later and tell them that I wish you were yes. not telling them that you know and you you kind of take it away and you talk about it later, but boy, it would have been great. It would be great to go back and tell those people. You know, I'd love to do that. Reverend Butcher at school, and he changed my life in in an afternoon because what he did, he went round the class and he, he asked us our views on I don't know nuclear bombs, uh, abortion, you know, all the big big issues of the day. And then when you'd say what you thought of them, his homework was could you write an essay vigorously in support of the opposite. Thought, no, 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 I was against that. You know, I know you were. And so I'm asking you not to say I don't believe. No, I want you to write an essay supporting the thing that you've said that you didn't support. And it just changed. You go, wow, it forced you to open your mind. and go, there's always two sides and you need to understand other people. I'd like to go back and talk to him and say, mate, thank you. You know, 40 years later, I'm talking to Brad Banducci about you. And I remember your name, Reverend Butcher, you know, hilarious. Well, walking in, each, in someone else's shoes, I think, is like a defining a defining thing to do, actually. I think it's uh, uh, one of the things I've uh, – one of my amazing moments was the Apartheid Museum. And I was in Soweto in Orlando East, uh, which is where it is. And I was watching the Soweto riots as covered in South Africa on one TV. And the other TV was as covered in Germany. Oh. And it was one of those moments when I just realized just – this juxtaposition of the way I grew up and it was amazing amazing to watch that you know the two different ways you could view the same event uh, quite shocking actually now I imagine we're going to come and talk about your upbringing when we come to your place uh, and if so I, I'm not going to I'm not going to push you on that theme now but I might move you on to the place so we can go there because I'm really interested <laughs> so my, in my most irritating habit is I'm relentless Nigel, <laughs> and I shouldn't be and I've got to let things go and I don't let them go and I try hard to let them go and then I somehow I come back to them so I just I get excited I get something in my head I yeah. kind of love to see it happen I just and, and does that drive Anna and the girls up the wall or? I think it drives all of my friends and we're colleagues nuts they just don't tell me all the time they, uh, I love the fact we work agile now at Woolworths because when they say no I say then when so I, we can we have a new negotiation but I'm driven by ideas and I love to see ideas and I, I just can't get them out of my mind and it's what interests me inspires me and the, the, I need to go back to something you said about um, what, what's the store like when they don't know that the CEO's turning up is there something I mean she's dead now but there's something that someone said about the queen thinks that the world smells of fresh paint <laughs> and you go, wow, she's never been anywhere that hasn't been freshly painted. So she thinks it. it's like Michael Jackson thinks normal people scream all the time. And you go, no, 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 that's just at you. So it must be quite interesting. You like the German TV and the South African TV covering those awful, awful riots. It is the this is the store when they know Brad's turning up and this is the store when you go. <laughs> you always know the store managers at the front, you know, it's as soon as you walk in. <laughs> Now, the fourth choice on Five My Life, and forgive me if I haven't pronounced this correctly, is Craddock uh, in the Great Karoo, Eastern Cape, South Africa. 
uh, it, it does have great historical significance in South Africa. It's where the 1820 settlers came into Port Elizabeth. My great-grandparents were part of that, I guess, immigration to South Africa. It's actually where the Great Trek started, the Kura Trek, and they trekked from Craddock. But it, for neither of those reasons do I love it. I've uh, Eight times have I done the South African Whitewater Champs, which is run outside of that town. It's this wild river race, 90 kilometers. Wow, and you just eight hold times. On. You hold on for your life and you go down this river. And I've done it always with a friend or my two daughters. Both my daughters have had to suffer in their final years of high school to go and do the champs. And we've come last <laughs> on, uh, I think, both occasions. Well, actually, Ella's pretty good. So we came in the middle of the pack. And Vita, <laughs> we came near the back with a badge of honor. And it's one of those, it comes to experiences. Having that experience with friends or my daughters is just such a rich thing to have done. And I, I like everything about it. I'm actually quite a cautious person, but... Uh, you just throw caution to the wind when you're in these these wild waters, and um, it's evocative of my youth and growing up in Africa and the beautiful Zebra National Park next door. But it's my one, it's one of my really one great passions. How, how long does the race take? It's two days, but you, you sort of train for about three days. Uh, you have to be a member of a club to do it, and so we created a club with only me as a member because I could ev- validate how good I was, which wasn't very good. And actually, a good friend of mine, Mike Van Niekerk, who you may know. So we had a club in Sydney, and now I've joined the Cradle Club. I'm, I'm part of the, the 80 members, of which there's this one strange person who lives in uh, and, Australia. And, and what's the boat? Is it, are you just you and your daughter? or It's a double kayak, so it's a K2. It is the South African Whitewater Champs uh, every second year. Some of the greatest kayakers of all time, uh, Europeans, have come. The first time I came, they gave me boat 01 because they thought this must be a real a dark horse from Australia blowing. Uh, myself and Mike, and we had to explain, we're not, you better move us back <laughs> in the rankings. And that's one of the biggest races uh, in the world in Whitewater. And, and, and what grade are the rapids? Uh, you, it's grade three, grade four. Right. Have you done the Franklin River? No, I, it's the only one I've ever gone to do. I, I need to go and do the rest wow. of them. Wow, I, I did that with Harry, my youngest really? son. And yeah, it's that, it's pretty hardcore. It's all you know, crap in a bag and take it out, and, and there's no camps. You know, it's, it's five days of. You know, I genuinely scared for my life twice. I mean, as in, I, I, this is it. I think I'm going to die now. You know, it's, <laughs> so I, I love a bit of white water. It, there's something about it. That, well, maybe it's that movement of water again coming back. To, I love the water going under the water. Been a lot of tears on that race. Uh, <laughs> And are you going to do it again? Got plans to do it again? Oh, I'm desperate. I'm oh, desperate. right. Brilliant. COVID really brought me undone. I kind of wanted to get my, my 10. Yeah. And then, you know, the COVID years, you couldn't you couldn't get there. And um, this year's the Rugby World Cup, so I have to go oh. to that, unfortunately. But it's the thing I'd like to do for the longest period of my life. And it's been going for, I think, 40 years now. And there's some people who've done it all 40 times, which is pretty amazing. Wow. Wow. You sent me some photos, uh, Goldblatt. Uh, really interesting about the the life that you could live and and just not know. You go, well, that's what, you know, I, I went to boarding school when I was five, so I didn't know what was going on in, in Brazil. I'm stuck in, in Dorset. Would you mind talking a little bit about your early South African experience? I, I love David Goldblatt, who's the seminal photographer, I think, of, of Africa and well, South Africa in the 20th century. It actually, I, when I arrived in Australia, uh, I met a friend and they said, I met a colleague, the, the guy I go kayaking with, Mark Van Eekirk, and he said, where do you come from? I said, Boxburg, and he said, like the book. And I said, what book? In Boxburg. And there was a book that was, David Goldblatt went and spent 
two and a half years taking photos of Boxburg in, in my high school. So essentially the story of my life was there in black and white and I'd never seen it because just, just through events. And I just found this amazing. There was this wonderful, stark view of, of, of the town I grew up in. David Goldblatt only took black and white photos until the end of apartheid. Then he went color. Wow. And so what he wanted to do was heighten and show that terrible juxtaposition between black and white through the photos. And, and the photos uh, say it all. So it was really um, so moving and realizing, my golly, this again comes back to these two different versions of the, the life that I, the place that I grew up in. And so it's, it's about a mining town, a hardworking mining town. It's, it's how apartheid was founded, really, the need for cheap labor and therefore a series of terrible events that started off that and continued. Uh, and uh, I, I just love all of his work, actually, and I've started to collect it, as you may know. And in fact, the last one I got was a photo of a trolley collector outside Pick and Pack oh. Hypermarket, the biggest hypermarket in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's this. He's one, not the original. I bought the original. No yeah, way. Yeah, Mate. Well, the, he did 10 of each. I need a 10 of each photo. Right. Um, so, I've, yeah, I, I do have it. I, I've I haven't, I haven't told my wife yet, so don't say anything, but I've got <laughs> it stashed. <laughs> we'll, we'll delay the release of this. <laughs> uh, um, I, I've seen a video of him talking about that trolley photo. Yeah. Uh, it's you? just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. Really, really interesting. Just a hardworking guy. Uh, what was the biggest hypermarket, the biggest grocery store in the Southern Hemisphere in its day? We grew up close by, you know. Yeah, just very, very evocative photo. And and do you think there's hope for the country? Well, I'm, you've got to live optimistically. So uh, there are many, many negatives. Uh, and I was just there again. I, I'm lucky enough to go very often. But if you look for the positives there, there, Nigel, and I see people doing amazing things uh, in South Africa, and they're inspiring, uh, whether it's SA Harvest, which is the version of Oz Harvest, which is just extraordinary what the team are doing. Uh, I could regale you with a thousand tales of people who are there trying to make a difference, and I believe in the difference they're making. And whether they succeed or not, I'm not certain, but they're trying, and I think that uh, I think that needs to be recognised and and celebrated. I was going to tell you that one of the great things about the Great Crew, which uh, the Crot Crew, uh, which you may not be aware, it's the second biggest plant of agave in the world. Right. It is. Uh, it was used as f- feed. So. Uh, you know, growing, uh, making agave in the crew is one of my life's ambitions. I should just log with you. <laughs> now, to, to talking of uh, nature and things, you, you own a vineyard, is that right? Sadly, just sold it, Nigel. Ah, oh, I'm out of date. Oh, okay. Yeah, we just did it. Um, we were very sad. It was coming back to keeping it real. It was a way of actually keeping life real. And I was very lucky when I was at the Boston Consulting Group. Every couple of months, I go and work on the vineyard. And it kind of made it real for me. You know, just you can be consulting big companies one day, and the next day, you pretty lousy worker, actually. Back breaking, isn't it? Pain me. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, I wasn't very good. <laughs> but to go and work in the vineyard with uh, a friend of mine from university who ran it, Tom Topping, was a really great grounding experience and so to have this juxtaposition of what really happens versus what yeah. you think about and that's how I ended up in the wine industry and actually ended up at, at Woolworths so it was one of the great experiences 25 years we um, we did it for but um, we've just closed that chapter and what was it what was the label it wasn't Brad's drop it was, no, called, it was well it was interesting it's called the Aurora Vineyard and it was um, a, a, in a place called Bendigo which was named Bendigo by the the Californian 49ers had gone to Bendigo, Australia, and the next big alluvial gold find was in central Otago, in Bendigo, well, what became Bendigo, and they called it Bendigo for good luck. Uh, and so it was a gold reef, and I sort of felt there's something kind of interesting to come from a gold mining town to find the next gold rush and to, to do something with a friend of mine from Africa and in a, you know, in a wonderful place like New Zealand and grow grapes was, uh, was a great journey. So 
Mate, how do you balance it all? And I don't want that to be a trite question. I get asked to talk about work-life balance and people crap on about, you know, doing yoga and getting up early. and all that. But, I mean, genuinely, how do you – you've got uh, a successful marriage, two lovely daughters, you run the, one of the biggest companies in the country, you, you until recently had a vineyard. H- how do you – you seem sort of calm and – modest and happy i'm sure you've got you know your your dark things which we won't go into but but how do you not spin out well i i i think it's a great question i'm not certain if you asked everyone who knew me they would say i'm I'm completely out of control um i think it's having this breadth and having curiosity and being interested and i I do think breadth and you know you're the same I, i think You've got to do a range of things, and I think it just keeps it interesting and fresh. You know, talking about the vineyard is not work for me. It's pure pleasure. Right. Um, you, you know, and uh, many of the the charity things I'm lucky enough to have been got, got involved in in the last couple of years, I, that's pleasure. If you take a positive attitude and you take a positive attitude to a portfolio of things that you do, um, I think it's stimulating. And it's not having balance in life. It's having a rich life. And I think I'm lucky enough to have a rich life. I love it. I, I, I've got a um, – don't, don't tell Kate, my wife, because uh, – We'll have a couple of secrets on that. Yeah, yeah, help, help. Uh, it is uh, a sort of a mantra, which is to be paid a fortune to work part-time doing things I love. And I think maybe for you, it's, it's take out the part-time bit. It's to be paid a fortune to work every hour that God sends doing things you love. Not working. <laughs> well, that's, if you're curious, it's not work. Yeah, a- absolutely. Wonderful. Okay, your last choice on Five Man Life. It's always the possession, uh, and it's often my favourite choice. You have chosen your grandfather's cut crystal whiskey tumblers. Could you describe them first and then tell us the story behind that? Yeah, they are classic Waterford tumblers, you know, a hundred. Two of them or? Two. Two. Um, actually, I had three. One got chipped on me. I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, but they're these wonderful traditional Irish whiskey tumblers. My grandfather was Claude uh, Claude Winterscale. And so he came through these 1820 settlers through Craddock, ended up running an engineering business in Boxburg. Um, and they're just beautiful and just so evocative of a generation past. And I don't drink a lot of whiskey. Uh, I know you don't drink, Nigel. I, I'm prone to the odd drink. Uh, but when I do, I just have one, and it's just a wonderful way, way of reflecting back on, you know, my father and my grandfather. Just a wonderful little thing to do and sort of have a toast to them. Tell us about your dad. Oh, my dad. It's funny how that made me... Uh, I, I can see you welling up. I, 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 I don't mean to be emotional about that, actually. Um, he was Italian. Uh, an Italian married the uh, an English girl in the um, in whatever it was in the... 50s in South Africa was a relatively controversial topic. <laughs> right. Uh, my grandfather told my mother, he's going to come to no good, he's going to beat you or whatever it is. And, uh, <laughs> right. Quite to the contrary, no, nothing, nothing like that at all. But sort of this wonderful merger between Italian and English South Africans. And uh, um, he, he, his name was, you know, Leon Luigi Banducci. And we all ended up with the middle name of Leon, which I thought was… And your dad had Luigi as one of his names. Middle name. Oh, I think grand, that's My brilliant. grandfather's name. I one love One of those that. great quintessential <laughs> names. And our, our family comes from Gattaiola, just outside of Lucca in Italy. And um, we still have Italian passports, actually, you know, and uh, still proudly think of ourselves as at least partly Italian. Uh, and one of the great sportsmen of South Africa, actually, in his time. So he was… Oh. 
uh, you know, in the top 100 soccer players in South African history, he, he, he's one of them. My, my grandfather re- represented the Springboks at soccer as well. My brother did, did it at tennis, so it was sort of a lovely sporting. Wow, okay. I missed the, I missed the gene. So, uh, so you're, you're the run to the litter. I'm, I'm embarrassed. They were so good at it. My, my middle brother is still ex- an extraordinary sportsman, and he was good at everything. He ran the 100 yards in 10 seconds. Uh, he would have gone to the Olympics, except he was offered quite a lot of money in those days to turn professional at soccer, and he, he took it. Uh, my dad was offered to play in the English League, and he never went because my mother refused to leave South Africa. So um, she, it was always one of those what-if kind of stories. But when he retired from soccer, he took up lawn bowls and was the, you know, the, the state champion and so on. So just a wonderful sportsman. But the defining characteristic of our family is numbers. My father and mother, uh, just and my brother's numbers. We're a number family. We, And he sort of gave that to us. I remember going to a grocery store with him. We'd add up the trolley and he'd say, you know, 100 rand and five cents. And the poor woman would push the button and he was right. And and if he wasn't right, then we'd have to evaluate what she had done wrong because clearly we had, we had been mistaken. She hadn't rung it up the right way. But a really very highly numerate and man, and so was my mother. And therefore, for us, we we played cards or games for everything we did, uh, and they're all number games. Fascinating! What 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 a amazing! And and do you uh, do you do the same? Do Anna and you do the same with with, with your two daughters? Or uh, we, we do a little bit of it. Um, our Benucci's like to win, so the kids, when they were younger, <laughs> perhaps didn't quite like it as much as uh, <laughs> I think they do now. Uh, we play more um, language games. Um, but my mother, uh, when I go back to South Africa, we are, you know, we are playing games, you know, 24 hours a day, and we still keep score. Uh, we never let each other win. Um, so no, my father was a great, a great, great man, a great sportsman. But um, yeah, we just there's a numeracy in our family that I can't, uh, I can't actually def- put my finger on. Wow, wow. So, mate, I, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I've got a couple more questions for you. But so three things. I mean, lots of things stand out. But what an interesting God! What an interesting upbringing. Uh, first is focusing on finding the good. I just love that. The second is when you said, where do the chefs eat? I'm going to use that. that Don't you that, think like that? That's just oh. brilliant. That's just fantastic. On every, in every category, I think that's just a fantastic thing. Uh, and, and the third thing is when I asked you about how you balance it is this, the benefit of just being curious. Just, you know, I just love that. I don't think we're different in that. And I think it's what keeps you relevant and young and interested and passionate. So two final questions for you. Uh, the first what do you wish you really understood if you had a magic wand? Wow. What would I really like to understand? I just want to understand how to make greater golf. <laughs> Come on. Answer it seriously. <laughs> um, what would I really like to understand? You wish that you understood. I, I'm, I just don't understand science, no jokes aside, and I just don't understand um, a lot of what's going on with the environment. And I wish I understood the science of what's happening in the environment. We're very passionate about well, sort of a better tomorrow. And I just, my brain doesn't work very well in that space. So, And I know you're very passionate about this topic. I, I wish I understood the science of it a lot more. So I could be much more helpful in, in driving our environmental credentials. And when everyone gets to you know carbon emission and all of those things, I can understand the numbers, but I don't understand the science. And I, well, I feel like it's the age where we need to understand the science of what is going on around us right now, and, and I don't. What, what a great answer. I mean, for me, I've got a bee in my bonnet about, about outcomes as a 
opposed to outputs. So you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted not to care about the environment or not to care about yeah. global poverty. So, so let's, all, let's all assume that we're on the same page in terms of wanting to do something. And then it's, yeah, but what actually works? That, that, you know, what, what, That's I, a derivative I, of it, exactly. I want to do what works. works. I don't want to be seen virtue signaling. or I just, just tell me what works and... Obviously, there is an agreement in, in, in every issue. The really important question is it, it could be, you know, closing the gap with disadvantaged sections of our society. You go, just tell me what will actually work. That's it. That's a more sophisticated answer. <laughs> of my, but it's true, right? Yeah. We all want to make a difference right now, but we're uncertain of exactly how to do it. Yeah. The last question is my traditional sixth question is who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? I'd like to hear your wife, Kate. <laughs> Brilliant. Why? Because I think that that lovely juxtaposition of what it's like to live with Nigel. <laughs> now, the trouble is, mate, because you're my guest, I can't reject. <laughs> but okay, well, well, right. I will. Well, do you know what? I tell you what. I've I've, I've got the line. The five of my wife. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Brad Banducci, it has been so nice hearing you discuss your choices on Five and I. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nigel, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and Sixty. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.